No? Oh, yeah. Welcome back, my friends. Today's Mindful Tanya teachings will continue to focus on the notion of passion and emotion that's supposed to infuse and charge the mitzvot we perform. And today we're going to be talking about angels in the outfield. <laughs> that's just a kind of a euphemism. And, and, but we are going to be learning about angels today. If you're just joining us, I, I want to remind you that you need to subscribe and enable notifications. That way, you'll know when our classes are beginning and you can tune in on a regular basis. Angels, this is a, a tough subject to discuss. It's tough because I don't really know what I'm talking about, per se. So how will you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I know that sounds really silly, but the thing is it isn't. It isn't because we could make the mistake of boiling the human condition down to observable phenomenon. That is to say, we could ignore our soul. We could ignore the yearning that every one of us has for something that's greater than the terrestrial, material, or fleshy reality, material, earthy reality of our everyday existence. We can ignore that. We can focus only on the notion of physical or material pleasure. We could focus only on the short journey that we undertake, this game we call life, in which body and soul are fused together, and then the soul is gone and it's meaningless said some Greek philosophers. Epicure is the chief expositor of this, and whilst Epicurean has come to known, be known today as somebody who loves pleasure, in Torah literature, it became the paradigm for Apicorus. Epicurus is the origin, according to some Torah opinions, for the word Apicorus. Apicorus is not a nice term and it's not a nice thing to be. It essentially denotes one who is entirely in denial of everything that is holy, godly, and Jewish. It denotes a person who believes only in the flesh. And yet despite the fact that so many people profess only to be moved or interested in that which can give them a moment of pleasure, or in psychological terms, a release of serotonin, the truth is that we all believe. We all yearn for and know deep in the core of our being that there is something far greater than the material reality. For some, it might be experienced in their dying moments when they reflect on life and ask themselves the question, with what can I comfort myself? What that I did is really of value, is really meaningful or considered to be an achievement. Sometimes when people are in crisis and all of the typical comforts which kind of pad a person from having to deal with the truth, because the truth makes people uncomfortable, 
and they use lots of padding. By being so busy with narishkaito, so busy with the immediacy of their needs, that they don't ponder the deeper, bigger questions. And then a crisis comes, and all of the things that made you comfortable, all the things that insulated you from the niggling questions that could eat away at the soul of a person and ask you to face a reality greater than yourself, all of a sudden it disappears. What's people's most natural reaction? You heard the expression. There are no atheists in the foxholes. Why not? Because the foxhole is a paradigm for a situation in which life flashes before your eyes and the things that you usually are able to pad or create a buffer between yourself and the deeper truisms suddenly have dissipated. And there's a profusion of faith. We are, to be sure, spiritual beings. Each and every one of us is a unique distillation that is in the image of God. Each and every single human being. As the Gemara, as the Talmud says, when it describes the heinous notion of taking an innocent life, that that's as if a person has destroyed the entire world, the Talmud uses the reality, which we understand so much more so today, of the uniqueness, physical uniqueness, of every human being. No people have precisely the same facial features. No people look exactly alike. Even, even twins, even identical twins. There are slight nuances. None of us are precisely or exactly alike. And we all have different personas or personalities, although our personas are created from our parents and oftentimes we will reflect not only the values with which we were raised, but also the nature of who we are. We're still unique human beings because every one of us is reproduced sexually, which means through two separate pools of DNA that come together. So you can never be a carbon copy. You'll always be unique. This is reflected in the notion of our unique fingerprints, the unique structure of the eye. None of us are the same. Why? Because God wants it that way. Because God wants you to know that you are unique and special and that your physical, material, terrestrially uniqueness is a reflection of your spiritual uniqueness. And the only way we can possibly maximize this journey called life, the only way we can experience life in the fullest is if we are aware of our spiritual side too. Imagine people who denied their emotions. They have no emotion, they say. They're stoic, tough, unmoved, unchanged, never shed a tear. Suppose we were to do that. Suppose that losses would not be mourned or noted. We just keep trucking. Too man to cry or to mourn or to experience a wistful sadness or longing. How successful would we be? Turns out, not very successful at all. It's only in the last few decades that we've suddenly begun to focus on post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a very real thing. 
PTSD is one of the greatest killers today. It's a silent killer. It eats away at people until they reach such a level of despondency and depression that they literally they move out of their minds. They become so irrational that these people tragically will end up taking their lives. And what have we learned over the past few decades? We've learned that we have to process things. We have to be aware of things. You can't simply go through life and not deal with issues because the issues don't go away. They fester, swept under the carpet. They will only cause more problems. And these problems can often be suppressed, but not forever. Somebody somewhere is going to suffer from those issues that weren't properly dealt with. Imagine a person who had no small intestines and didn't have kidneys. Imagine a person who wasn't processing waste and then getting rid of it. You don't have to think very long and hard to envision an absolute total disaster. That would kill you. Well, when we don't process things emotionally, that can kill us too. We have spiritual needs. Every one of us has spiritual needs. To deny those spiritual needs is probably the greatest mistake people can make. It's a tragic mistake that people make all the time. Thinking that religion is for weaklings, opiate of the masses, said Karl Marx, in his effort to denigrate and bury the notion of faith. How well did that work? How moral, enlightened, kind, and sensitive, how good and ethical a society did communism produce? Those brave enough to look at the facts instead of getting lost in the politically correct mumbo-jumbo, pie-in-the-sky, ivory tower of reality. Those who are dealing with actual reality know that it didn't work. It didn't work not only because it denies basic human instincts like competition, a desire for excellence. After all, capitalism taps into some of the very base elements of the human condition, even like greed or envy. We aren't able to transcend these things. We are able to transform or sublimate these things. And to do so fully, my dear friends, one needs to have faith and a faith system. It's a divinely ordained algorithm which enables us to harness and to express our deepest and fullest self. It works. It's been around for longer than all the other isms. Our Yiddishkeit has been burning brightly, shedding light for 37 centuries. And in 
for all practical purposes, our present iteration since Matan Torah 3,332 years ago. So we could ignore the notion of spiritual worlds. We could ignore the notion of our soul. We could ignore the reality or truth of angels, and we could simply turn our backs on God. That possibility is yours, and it's only yours because you're alive in this terrestrial realm. Should you be living in a different space, in a different dimension, it would no longer be possible because you know the truth. But here you don't. Here, you're only aware of what you can appreciate through your five senses. Although sometimes a sixth sense tells you there must be something else afoot. I really don't mean to take you down a garden path or introduce anything tangential to the subject. I'm just making a case for our study today, which is about totally spiritual realities that I can't know what I'm talking about because I'm stuck here in this world along with the rest of you. You and I once lived in a different dimension, but part of the process known as birth necessarily meant letting go of that. As small infants, we have distant memories. According to the author of the famous Friday night Shabbat Eve hymn, L'chad Odi, the Alkabats, he says that the reason that people sing to babies and the reason that music appeals to even small infants, you know, lullabies? Well, the first lullabies ever talked about are the Midrash descriptions of how Mother Sarah would rock Isaac to sleep. And Jewish people famously had lullabies that were filled with spiritual messaging for infants who couldn't possibly understand. And yet, we sang these lullabies. The Rebbe talked about the notion of a beautiful Yiddish ballad that really for centuries Jewish women would sing to their children as they put them to sleep. It's about Torah is the best Eschere, is the greatest or most rewarding merchandise per se, the most rewarding pursuit because we believed as the Neshama Hert, the soul is able to hear things like this. And there's a part of our Yiddishkeit that isn't taught, but as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zechariah Lavracha used to say, a part of a Yiddishkeit that can only be caught. And we catch that from our mothers. They are the ultimate providers of the foundation of who we become as human beings, who we become as vibrant members of Amisro. And the Alkabat says that music is an earthly reflection of what is described, obviously, in anthropomorphic terminology as the singing of the angels. The Akobat says that small children, infants, just weeks or maybe months old, can still remember, can still relate, are still yearning for that reality which slowly ebbs away from them. And as we become more mature, and as our minds develop, and as the child begins to have a self-consciousness, aware of itself and its surroundings, and how it relates or communicates with it, 
the more it forgets where it came from, or the previous iteration, the previous dimension in which it lived. I have no recollection, recollection of angels. Angels have nothing to do with the Hollywood imagery that you might have become familiar with, which are based on the frescoes of the Impressionist paintings or the Renaissance painting. It's not about that. It's not about people with wings. That's patently ridiculous. Those are people with chicken's wings sewed onto them. They're not angels. Angels are not people. Angels don't have bodies. Angels don't have corporeal realities. Angels don't really have moods. They're not stuck in the vicissitude of time and certainly not in space as are we. It's a different kind of creature. So why are we talking about angels? Because it's true. Because it's real. And because there's an element of us that also comes from that dimension. And the only way we could possibly understand to some degree our own inner self, the only way we can listen to our own inner voice, the only way we can respond to our own inner rhythm is by intellectualizing these concepts which are by and large beyond the purview of our full grasp because we don't have an experiential backdrop to place it against. As Maimonides, as Rambam said, a deaf person will never be able to appreciate the beauty of music because being born hearing impaired means he or she simply can't relate, has never experienced the beauty of music. The person who was born without the ability to see could never understand the beauty of a magnificent or glorious sunset, could never appreciate the nuances of colors and of the synergy that one might create with them because they never had the experience of seeing a sunrise or a sunset, because they never were able to see a beautiful picture of something that stuns the senses and shocks the soul. So they can't really relate. You can speak about these things, and they can even speak about it. People who are hearing impaired, and people who aren't given the gift of sight, can even write poetry about these things. And there's something very beautiful about it. Something very touching about the person who doesn't have those gifts for reasons unbeknownst to us. And yet, is able to wax on about them. Well, that's kind of like us. We are really hearing impaired and essentially legally blind when it comes to things in the realm of the spirit. Truth be told, the notion of sight or audibility doesn't apply to any of that. We can't fathom that. We're stuck in our present reality. But it's liberating when we learn or intellectualize ideas that are somewhat beyond us. So we can speak about them intelligently. We can use metaphor and parable even if we don't have the full experiential appreciation of what we're talking about. And as I shared with you many times, this kind of study will become most edifying, most meaningful when Mashiach comes. Because then we'll all experience it. Tzaddikim, very righteous men and women, can experience things like this while they're still terrestrially alive. As per the words of the Talmud, Elamcha, 
tira b'chayecha, your world, a euphemism for the world to come, the paradise that's created through the plethora of beautiful, morally minded, and divinely ordained ethical behavior, that creates a paradise of sorts, a reality, a dimension that tzaddikim, righteous men and women, can actually experience when they are still tethered to the terrestrial realities or bodies, not for us. But we can intellectualize it. We can understand it with our minds. We can somewhat relate to it in as much as we haven't really experienced it. And when Mashiach comes, we will say, Aha! So this is what that really meant. So now I experience the things that I learned. And it is said that when Mashiach will come, there will be two groups of people, those who came together to study the kinds of things we're studying today and those who didn't. I'm talking about Jews who are educated, involved in the pursuit of divinely ordained knowledge called Torah, but those who don't study the mystical dimension of Torah. And the difference will be that those of us who are privy to these studies, that includes you now, when Mashiach will come, we will say, aha, so that is what I understood. That's what it really meant. And the others will sadly be clueless. I'll conclude my little preamble to today's class with this. If there's anybody out there watching who's still in doubt of whether or not this is a good idea or has an impact on the practical Torah we study, I should tell you that the Vilna Gaon, who is considered to be the chief architect of the opposition to studying mysticism and the spiritual discipline, although he himself was a tremendous disciple of Kabbalah and the last years of his life, he only studied Kabbalah. The Vilna Gaon wrote in his commentary on Mishle that one who does not study the kinds of things we're studying today can't paskin, can't rule a halacha of ruling in Torah, la'amitosa, in its fullest, truest sense. Because there's a dimension of Torah that's missing. And psak halacha, to be able to come to a conclusion, which essentially means you're saying, this is what the Creator wants, requires at least a connection to, albeit if it's only anthropomorphical, and a metaphorical connection, but nonetheless a connection to the higher realities of Torah and Judaism. So why are we talking about angels? What does it mean angels are in the outfield? What is the, where's the diamond, where's the outfield? Are we hitting the ball out of the park today? What is going on here? What are we talking about? So preface number two, I'm going to zero into something we've talked about at great length in this series. Specifically in our previous presentation, we talked about the notion that mitzvot, mitzvot are acts of holiness. Holiness, holiness comes from that which is beyond the material world. The world, the word kedusha or kadosh means elevated from, separated from. There is something that's separated from this world. This world meaning the world that's generated by nature, which means concealment in Hebrew, 
Teva means sunken. The world that's generated with, by our human observation, things we see and the way we feel about it, which are all part of the fabric of secular or everyday existence. And then there's something which is holy, meaning coming from another place. It's exalted. It's not part of the regular ebb and flow of what we call human anthropology or civilization. It's not simply part of the rhythm of nature. It's something that comes from a higher place, namely from the Creator. The Torah comes from the Creator, and mitzvot were commandments, an important word, because they represent us being prepared to bow our heads in submission to Hashem, to do what God wants rather than self-express. Self-expression can never be holy per se because it's expressive of self. It's part of this everyday reality. There's nothing holy about it. It could be spiritual in the sense that it isn't material. A person who enjoys beautiful music is perhaps a more spiritual individual than somebody who enjoys delicious food or other forms of carnal libido. But it's not any holier. The person who delights in classical music and the person who delights in roast beef are not intrinsically different. They're human beings responding to external stimuli. One absorbs or ingests the music and finds that it stimulates his mind and his heart, and the other absorbs and ingests food, and the taste buds stimulate and inspire them to feel good. But in either instance, it's part of our, it's part of our rhythm. It's part of our reality. When a person is prepared to go beyond his or her reality because they recognize or have come to appreciate that there is something that's beyond me. It's not just about me. There's a higher calling than I have left behind the world of selfishness and I have begun the journey of selflessness. And that takes me in a direction of holiness. So if I bring joy to somebody else, but I bring joy to somebody else by giving them of what is essentially forbidden by Torah, it's not called holy. It could be selfless. It's not called holy. If somebody engages in an act of incest or debauchery or adultery, not because they're particularly charged or stirred by the other individual, but because they want to give somebody else a good time. They want somebody else to be happy. I'm getting kind of graphic. I get that. I'm just giving you an example of something which could be profoundly unholy. Adultery is profoundly unholy. Not because there's a spouse who violates his or her commitment to their spouse. That's not why it's unholy. It's unholy because the bond of marriage is a sacred thing that comes from a higher place. So no, it's not okay if a husband says, you know what, honey, the next few days are for you. Do as you please. And she's very altruistic. And she says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give an intimate experience to somebody who wouldn't have it otherwise. Not because I want it. Supposing even that it's not what she wants, but she actually really wants somebody else to have a good time. It's actually wrong from a Torah perspective. That's a violation 
of sacred principles. So it's unholy. That is to say that not everything unselfish is holy. Holiness comes from something that is beyond our world. I can be a giving person. I can even be a, a selfless person to a degree that becomes ultimately part of our everyday existence. I enjoy giving. I enjoy being selfless. Now, if you want me to give in a way which makes me really uncomfortable and doesn't in any way, shape, or form bring me a sense of satisfaction, well, that's something else. I'm not signed up for that. I'm only signed up to do what I like to do, including sometimes give. But that's the kind of giving I enjoy. That giving I don't like. So that's not really selfless. That's really maybe a more refined form of selfishness, but it's still about self. Holiness is achieved when we transcend self. And the only way we transcend self is by leaving our reality behind in order to step into God's reality. And that's why commandment is such an important word, because if I do mitzvahs that resonate with me, it's all about self-expression. I'm not worshiping God at all, and I'm not doing anything holy. The notion of engaging in a relationship with God is when I give, proverbially speaking, to God. And who am I, and why is that meaningful to God? Excellent question. The only answer is, God says it's meaningful. And because God says it's meaningful, it is. And that's what a mitzvah is about. And the best way a mitzvah can be performed, as we discussed, is a mitzvah that is not only an act of external subservience. It's not only something that I do, despite the fact that I don't really enjoy or like this. It's not what I signed up for. But when I actually develop a delight in this godly idea, an ideal, I develop a taste for it. I'm excited about doing what God wants. I'm excited about leaving myself behind. And the only way I get there is through intense contemplation. Essentially, it, it's a depiction of how the things I learned and the things I was able to begin to value have filtered down into the core of my soul. So that when a mitzvah arrives, I'd actually be excited about it in the same way that I'm stimulated or stirred by the smell of delicious food when I'm hungry. Now, you may not like that food. Okay, then you'll like another food. Everybody likes some kind of food, and there is some kind of smell that will stimulate everybody. It may not be the same smell. It may not be the same food. Some of it is nurture. Some of it is nature. But in the end, the notion that the intoxicating aroma of good food will stimulate a person and draw them in is natural. The notion that the proverbial aroma of Torah being studied will actually stimulate somebody to the point that that becomes who they are, that's a step beyond. That means the person has transformed themselves, and that can only happen through education. My grandfather, Zichrona Levracha of blessed memory, was a Holocaust survivor who never saw Nazis. 
His father was arrested by the Soviets in March of 1939, just after Purim. And after tortures, in a false court case, he was accused of leading rebellion, sedition against the Soviet juggernaut, the communist enterprise. The last rabbi of Kiev, my great-grandfather, was sentenced to several years of isolation, exile. He was sent away to a tiny hamlet called Nikurgan, which is in the northeastern area of Kazakhstan. Not much grows there. Very hard to survive, especially if you aren't one of the indigenous people. And the indigenous people were not particularly impressed with these visitors sent to live amongst them. Many people died of starvation, of loneliness, of heartbreak. My great-grandfather was sent away to this distant village. And at some point, my grandfather was a teenager and his mother and their sisters decided they would go and join him. Had they not, I wouldn't be here because just a few months later, for three consecutive days, the Nazis and their willing executioners and henchmen, the locals, massacred the entirety of Kiev's Jewish population in open pits, in a ravine called Babi Yar, before the Nazis perfected their art of murder with the gas chambers. The Jews of Lithuania, White Russia, Belarus, Ukraine were simply massacred. Many of them from bullets and many of them from being buried alive. So my grandfather survives the Nazis because he leaves Kiev before the Nazis get there, guided by a, a higher hand. And there, there's tremendous deprivation, especially as the war intensifies. And the story is that one day, he, he was desperate, looking for something to eat. And near the train station, near the train tracks, he hears the sound of some kind of living thing. He thought perhaps it was an animal that had been injured. Maybe, maybe it was something that could feed them and keep body and soul together. And so my grandfather climbed down into this icy embankment near the, near the train tracks. And he saw something moving in the snow. And to his horror, it wasn't a goat or a cow. It was a human being, bloodied and broken. It was a fellow Jew. My grandfather could see that it was a Hasidic Jew. And he carried him in his hands. And he brought him to the tiny dwelling where they were. And they tried to wash him and clean him. He was in a coma. He tried to put a little bit of liquid between his lips. They didn't know if he would survive. It was bitter cold. And there was an oven that kept this tiny place warm. And they laid him on top of the oven to give him the maximum amount of warmth and covered him with whatever blankets they had. And he was delirious, murmuring things. 
but after several days of literally being between heaven and earth, he opened his eyes. My grandfather had smuggled a tiny Gemara into exile, Mesechet Kesubas. It's called Shaskot, and Isaiah was a, a bucky in this Mesechet, because that's what he did with his father. They studied Torah together all day. And they were learning out of a tiny Gemara, sitting and learning together. And the man wakes up after being in a coma for three days. And he says, Oi, Milerent, Nemt mich oich arain. Oi, he says, You're learning Torah. Take me into. He didn't ask for food, he didn't ask for respite from pain. By nurture, and ultimately by nature, he had been trained to have a love for Torah study. They later discovered that he was the dove of a southern Polish town called Yardinov. He had escaped the Nazis. And a group of peasants saw this Jew amongst them on the train and decided that it would be a good idea to kill him, just for sport. So they beat him to a bloody pulp and threw him off a moving train, leaving him for dead. And had my grandfather not chanced upon him, as if anything is a chance, he would not have survived. He did survive. He was a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham. And he later met a son who survived the war, though his wife and the rest of his children were killed. I think maybe two sons survived. And he later lived in the Lower East Side. My father remembers at a certain point I think this man himself showed up at my grandfather's house. He heard that my grandfather had moved to New York. And he wanted to see him and thank him for saving his life. And he came, either he came or his son, and they, they wanted to give him money. My grandfather had no parnasa at the time. And he was uh, offended. Like, you think I'm going to sell my mitzvah for some money? He refused to take a penny from them. It's interesting, when my Zaidi was here, he was here once. I asked him to tell a story from his Holocaust, the Holocaust years, and this was the story he told. And incredibly, my father was here on the eve of his Shloshim, because my son was named after my Zaidi, my Shibinyamin's bris was the next morning. And my father sat down after to share a few stories, speak about his father, and he told the story. I found it very compelling. Why am I telling you this story? I didn't plan to. I'm telling you the story because I want to give you an example of how one can develop a love, a love for Yiddishkeit, a love for things spiritual, which can become as powerful as our love or desire for food itself, for nourishment itself. And this is something that not can happen. I told you a story of something that happened. Was this man a tzaddik? I don't know. Would he have been piqued in the same way if everything about his physical existence hadn't been broken, if he wouldn't be pushed literally to the brink of barely physically existing, would he still have responded, I don't know. I don't know. It's possible not. I don't know if on a, a regular Monday morning the smell or sounds of Torah study would have been as intoxicating as good food had he not eaten in a day. I don't know. For a tzaddik, the answer is certainly yes. Tzaddikim don't sin because they find sins to be repulsive, abhorrent, disgusting, 
like you would a diaper. That's how a tzaddik sees a sin. Don't worry if you don't see it that way. I don't either. We're not tzaddikim. We have to struggle with our Yetzirah not to be drawn after those things. And sometimes we slip and we trip and we have to do tshuva and return to Hashem with greater fervor and promise Hashem we're not going down that path again. And even if we have an urge and even if something pulls or beckons, we'll restrain ourselves. We'll force ourselves to go the other way. But it is possible for a person to actually develop, at least to some degree, an emotional engagement with our Yiddishkeit. Where people are as afraid of sin as they are of COVID, for example. To the point where people feel it's as or more important for them to be able to attend shul as it is to go and visit the grocery store. That isn't the case for most people I know today, sadly. But it can and should be. It should become part of our emotional structure. Our fear for physical danger should be no stronger than our feel, our fear for spiritual danger or being disconnected from the Creator. Our yearning for physical life should be no stronger, no more powerful a drive than our yearning for spiritual fulfillment and closeness to Hashem. Now, whilst, whilst many of us will never be able to develop those feelings as a result of our education, we can all tap into an elemental, natural part of who we are. For by nature, just by dint of being born of a Jewish mother, or just because somebody has converted according to halacha, he or she will necessarily yearn for, gravitate towards Torah, mitzvot, God, spiritual fulfillment. And we have to ruminate on that and think about it. And when we ruminate and think about it, it can actually filter through to who we become. I had a conversation just a little while ago with somebody who was considering conversion for a variety of reasons, probably not the best, but nonetheless. And I said to this individual that it's not about adopting Jewish observance for a little while so you can pass a test. It's got to become the thing that fuels your passion, your imagination. It has to become part of your life. It has to become the kind of thing that you can't imagine living any other way. A really committed and observant Jew prefers death to a life that is empty of spiritual pursuit and mitzvah fulfillment. That's not a theory. That was a fact that was demonstrated hundreds of thousands of times during the Holocaust where people made decisions. Decisions, whether it was a question of losing their little bit of Yiddishkeit they could maintain to grasp the straws of material survival and they wouldn't let go of their Yiddishkeit. Because living a life that is devoid of Yiddishkeit just isn't a life worth living. It isn't life. And this is not about morbidity or death, chas v'shalom. Yiddishkeit is about life. And so we're looking for, what do we want? What does a Torah observant Jew want to see 
for their progeny, for their children, for their grandchildren. Everybody wants to see their children happy. Everybody wants to see their children fulfilled. But a Yid who vibrates or pulsates with a passion for Yiddishkeit, even if it's not greater than their passion for material or physical things, wants Yiddish nachas. They want to see children who follow in the path of eternity, of Yiddishkeit. And children who are big earners will have lots of fame and material fortune, but no Yiddishkeit. Don't bring them nachas. That's the truth. But if it's just nature, if it isn't something that comes through tremendous effort, if it's just because you're raised that way or just because that's how you were educated or because for whatever reason you tapped into your most elemental desire to be a Yid, to be connected to the Creator, to Hashem, is it still really meaningful? And as we learned in previous classes, we're beginning Pedaklamates of Tanya, the answer was a resounding yes. In fact, it's even angel-like. For when the prophet saw an image of Malachim, of angels, he specifically was shown the image of beasts or animals. Why was he shown the image of beasts or animals? Why was he shown any image? Why couldn't he see people who were maybe morose or happy? People who were belligerent or aggressive or not? People can reflect the wide range of different behaviors. You can look at somebody's face and know if they're kind or have a kindly disposition or if they're mean and cruel or indifferent. You can see in somebody's facial features if they're angry at you or if they're being aggressive. Why is it that the prophet was shown animals, pnei arye, pnei shor, with a different nature? Because the lion is never going to be an ox, and the ox will never be a lion. And the answer is because there is something very powerful about the nature of animals that is reflective of angelic reality. Not the corporeal reality. Angels aren't furry any more than they have wings. <laughs> they don't have claws or hooves. And certainly not horns. That's ridiculous. That's moot. That's like asking what color is algebra. Or suggesting that the distinction between long division and short division is the difference between sugar and salt. This is foolish. It has nothing to do. It's a moot point. It's moot to see image of animals. Unless there is a motif, unless this serves as a metaphor, as a vehicle to convey a point, and it does. The Alter Rebbe says, the point is that that the proverbial holy beasts, that the animalistic nature of angels is such that the angel can only be who he or she, if you will, is. The truth is angels have no genders, per se. They don't have bodies. They don't have personas. They can't have a male or female personality because a male or a female personality by, by definition means that they are a conglomerate of different ways and there's a certain arrangement of the way female emotions are and the way male emotions are and the male brain and the female brain and so on and so forth which is reflective of the physical realities and differences and distinctions between the different genders. None of this applies to angels because angels are not limited 
and are also not given the range of possibility. So they don't have material corporeal realities, but they also don't have a range. So the stallion can only be a stallion. It can be the best stallion, but it can still only be a stallion. And if what you need is an animal to pull the plow, the stallion is not your hero. That's not what he does. He's a racehorse. He can lead you into battle in times of old. You can't hitch him to a plow. And riding an ox into battle would have been a bad idea. But he was indispensable for the farmer. And the lion has tremendous power and courage and cunning and an instinct for the hunt. But the lion can only be a lion. He can never be anything else. So too, the Altarebbe tells us, reflecting the teachings of Luriana Kabbalah and the Kabbalists who preceded him, the angel is ultimately but a reflection of a particular kind of emotion, a particular kind of creature. The angel of Ava pulsates with tremendous fervor and love, but that's all it can do. It has no range of possibility. The angel of Yira, of awe, can only express its awe before God. It can't really go beyond that. Only human beings are endowed with the possibility to choose the range of choice between good and bad. And then even when it comes to asetov, to how we do a good thing, we can choose the methodology. We can choose not only the decibel, or not only the intensity, but we can choose even what kind of service we're going to serve Hashem with. And that's very meaningful because every one of us is predisposed personality-wise to kind of lean in a certain direction. Real avodat Hashem comes when we transcend that. A very powerful paradigm of this that Rebbe says is the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac by our father Abraham, whose spiritual proclivity always leaned towards kindness, engagement, giving. And here Abraham was asked to do something that required the greatest indifference, seen really as utter cruelty, the opposite of kindness. And only then Hashem says, Ata yodaiti. Only now do I know ata, that you really and truly respect and revere God. Only now? Avraham Avinu is 130 years old. Only now? Really? He's 137 years old. He's been on this path for 134 years. He spent an enormous amount of time hiding fearing for his life as a child. He was cast into a fiery furnace from, of which nobody expected him to survive. He was tormented. He was beaten. He was abused. That was just his childhood. Challenge after challenge after challenge was endured and experienced first by Avram and then Avram and Sarah together at his side. And then at age 75, he had the greatest test, if you will. God said, now that you're finally successful and you have a ministry that's flourishing, time to go and move. Just pick up and go. 
Where are we going? Don't ask questions. I'll tell you. Lech Lecha. And that's where the Torah's narration begins. Because here Avram Avinu has to really step outside of himself. But he continues to do what Avraham does. And he has a hard time when he has to do things that Avraham doesn't do. Like get rid of his son Yishmael because he's trying to sexually abuse and even kill his kid brother Yitzchak. Avraham doesn't do those things. He doesn't excel at discipline. Sarah does, not Avram. But he's got to do it, and so it's one of his tests. But the greatest test is to seek an Avraham do something that is totally un-Avraham-like. The Akedah is the most un-Avraham-like thing he was ever called upon to do. Ah, if you can go through with this, Avraham was prepared to. Atiyodaiti. That is the greatest sign of spiritual courage and metal. But think, my friends, it's all about Avram going beyond himself. Because that's really what Avodat Hashem, servitude to God, means. And so the Alter Rebbe says, the angel is called Achaya because Lafisha Eine Baal Bechira. The angel has no choice. We're moving along on Perik Lamates. It's page 102 in the original Tanya print, if you're following the traditional English translation. It's page 188 in the Hebrew, 187 in the English. Now we're just after the first couple of lines. The Alter Rebbe says that the angel is not a Baal Bechira of Yerosam ve'ahavosam hitivis lahem. It's the angel's ahava, its fervor, its awe, its reverence is only nature, natural to them. Kamesha Kosov, like it says in Raya Mehemna, which is a codicil of the Zohar itself, in Parshas Pinchas. And because that's the case, this makes the human being special. For the human being has the ability to choose. The human being has the ability to decide how, what kind of person they will be. The angel can't decide what kind of person it will be. It never gets to make decisions like that. How would it be able to decide that? The angel of Ava can only be an Ohev. He can't do anything else. And therefore, because he doesn't have that virtue of intelligence, not that angels aren't intelligent, that would be ridiculous to say. The Rambam himself speaks about angels in the laws of foundations of Torah, Yesodia Torah, the beginning of the book of Mishnah Torah, in the second chapter, and he says that angels are brilliant. They have a consciousness that is beyond yours and mine, or even the greatest geniuses amongst us. In the Rambam's words, Chaim umakirim es They are alive. They know. Mind, intelligence. They know. Yoidim, oisoi, das, adma They know God in a way, in a lofty, powerful, profound form of knowledge. Exceedingly powerful. Much more profound than our knowledge. It's not that they don't have knowledge. It's not that they don't have intelligence. That's not doesn't make them animal-like. It just means the animal can only remain an animal. Only a human being can become something different, can truly rise above the fray of his or her nature. And angels can't do that. In other words, its intelligence doesn't change who it is. It can't change who it is. You know, they say the leopard can't change its spots, but you can angels can't but you can 
therefore, the Alta Rebbe says, Mailas Hatzadikim, the virtue of the achievement of the woolly righteous, is far greater than the angels. It doesn't mean that the tzaddik's aveda is actually more impressive than the angels. It just means that the virtue of the tzaddik is greater. Now I was thinking about this. I was trying to, to visualize a metaphor. Here's a, my humble little offering. Claude Monet was a great French landscape outdoor, outdoor landscape painter. You know, the, the Rembrandts of the world don't paint natural landscapes. They, they paint very carefully controlled scenes where the light is very carefully controlled. But Monet was part of a, a different group of artists, in a way revolutionary, going away from the traditional realism and creating what, what they call today the landscape impressionist painting. And he, he painted outdoors, and in, in partly the invention of portable easels enabled this, because artists couldn't leave their studios. They had to bring the imagery they were painting to them, whether it was people or a jug or, or a fruit. They had to be, they would carefully control the light, and they would be, would be in their studio. But then all of a sudden, people took their studios outdoors. They went mobile. And, and, and Monet, in the late 19th century, purchases a home with a very impressive garden, an estate with gardens. And then he plants a secondary garden. The first garden was m more traditional. The second garden is more, I guess what they would call them, in the image of the Far East, with lily pads and bamboos and stuff like that. And, and Monet painted. He spent almost the last 20 years of his life painting these aerial landscapes, these outdoor landscapes of his gardens. Now, Monet's paintings are extremely valuable. And people travel far and wide to see those paintings. And they have prints and lithos of those paintings hanging in homes and offices. And the funny thing is that Monet's gardens are still around. It's a museum today. Before COVID hit, it attracted hundreds of thousands of people a year who would make pilgrimages from all over the world to this proverbial mecca of impressionist painting. The original gardens planted much of it by Monet himself, who became an expert at horticulture. And despite the fact that we have incredible cameras today, in fact, we have, we have greater capability in a little iPhone camera than the cameras that were around when I was, the most the fanciest cameras around when I was a kid. The cameras of the 70s have got nothing on an iPhone. And it's just one of the many functions of this little tiny piece of machinery. Today they have the most sophisticated forms of photography. Why would somebody need Monet's paintings if you can just take a picture of the very same garden at any time of the day or in any season? And anybody who actually values or appreciates that question does not value and appreciate art. There's something about art. There's something about this was a human being and he captured it as as he saw it, this was the gardens that Monet saw with his incredible talent and his unique ability to relate to the soft colors that can be found only in that part of France. The very soft way there's an interplay between heaven and vegetation, between water and soil, 
And not only, by the way, babbling, psychobabble. I actually do have a little bit of appreciation for art. I, am, I have some artistic talent. This is real. It's, it's a real thing. I would tell you that the Avoida of a tzaddik is a Monet. And the Avoida of the Malach is the most exquisite camera you can buy today. Now, it is true that today there are also photography. There's photography that is a, an art form. I get that. It's about the angle. It's about the light, even when you can't control the light, a way of capturing the light. And there is an art form to it. And I'm, I, I'm using this example specifically because there are angels that are somewhat human. We'll talk about that in a moment. But as a rule, we don't look for pictures of Monet's gardens, even though they're far more precise and maybe even exquisite. We're looking for the paintings that Monet produced. So the avoid of the tzaddik is not necessarily greater. He doesn't serve Hashem with a crisper picture, but it's a human picture. It's a human being who struggled with weakness and foibles, with a world that's filled with derisive and abusive attitude towards he or she who seeks spirituality. And it's, it's about being able to overcome the minutiae of politics and pettiness and people and, and yet to still be a, a contributing member of society and to be a paragon of positivity despite all of the negativity around you and the circumstantial things that can bring you down and yet that the tzaddik can live within all this and have all these needs and be able to transcend it and ignore it. That's truly divine. That's why we are created in the image of God more so than the angels. The angels can't really change themselves. So it's not to say that angels are dumb. When we say that they don't have seichel, it means they don't have the ability to change themselves through the things they know or learn of. And here the Alter Rebbe sends the angels to the outfield. He says that mother neshama tzaddikim that the place that tzaddikim, so to speak, dwell in, and obviously we would only see this in the afterlife. Where do tzaddikim go when they leave this dimension? But the fact that they can go there, or that that is their destiny, that that is the destination, if you will, is indicative of the notion that that's where their source is. That's where they're able to go to. And because the tzaddik's able to go to there, or will be there, then the tzaddik on some way is always living there. You know those water towers that dot the highway? That's water being pumped up as far as the highest towers or dwellings in that town so that they still have water pressure. Because when the water goes down, it can only come back up as far as it came from. And that's why the Beit HaMikdash was not in the highest plateau of Jerusalem cells, but slightly lower than something called Ne'en Itam, the spring of Itam, which may well be what they call today in Israel, Armon Hanasich. That's what archaeologists have discovered over the last couple of years. They think that the, the uh, Pasha's palace, or later what was the palace of the provisional governor, be it Ottoman or British, today it's a lookout, the Haas Promenade lookout. That is the origin of this Mayan, of this, this spring, so that there will be water pressure. Because the natural water pressure is what washed the floors of the base of Megdish, but this is a subject for another day. Bottom line, you can only go so high as to your source. The source of tzaddikim is in the world of what's called Yitzira, of Bria, 
whereas the source of malachim is only in Olam Hayetzira. Now what does that mean? So when God first begins to create the world, at first creation has no independent existence altogether. There can be nothing other than God. The light is so bright, everything else is eclipsed. The first reality is not a reality at all. It's called atzilus, like pre-consciousness. It doesn't even exist. In order for later reality to emerge, there has to be some kind of precondition. Atzilus is that precondition. Atzilus is a pure reality where the only thing that's really felt or known is godliness. So it's not called a creation per se. But the next dimension is called Bria, where now there are creatures that seem to be somewhat independent of divinity. They don't really have the freedom to choose. There isn't the possibility of evil there, but there, there is a they. They have no form. They have no specific expression. Nonetheless, they are. That's the world of Bria. The world of Yitzira is where that reality is no longer in a state that's bullion, but it gets formed. It's not a lump of metal, it's a knife or a fork. It has an identifying mark to it. And that's when it's distanced from God so that it can not only be, but it can be a something. So tzaddikim can get to the world of Bria. Why? Because when the tzaddik is able to set aside his or her personal desires, when the tzaddik is able to re-engineer themselves so that they want not what comes to them naturally, but what God wants them to want, then they have shed their own independent existence and as so can be absorbed into a higher level of divinity. Whereas the malach, who never really sheds his skin, he never really goes past who he is, he can't exist in the world of Bria. He's overwhelmed by it. There is no possibility to experience Bria because the noise of self doesn't allow for him to hear the music. Because he's blinded by a different form of light or darkness which doesn't allow him to see certain things. Can't experience it. Doesn't mean you don't have a lock and a key and go into one world or the other. It's something you're not aware of. You know, there are medications today which are essentially able to play with your brain to make you be very focused. Probably the most famous one is, is a drug called Ritalin, which they give to a lot of kids who probably don't need it, but are forced to take it, and that's a subject for another day. The point is some people really have a condition that's called ADD or ADHD, and that's they can't focus. So much like the eye that can't focus and needs eyeglasses in order to zero in to actually be able to see things with precision, some people have so much creative energy, they're not able naturally to focus it. They need an aid. They need some kind of pharmacology to help them focus. A relative of mine told me that when he does a long drive, in order to be hyper-focused, he actually, he takes some Ritalin, even though he doesn't really need it. He takes it from somebody else in the family who does, and he says, it's unbelievable. He's totally focused on the road. There are people who talk about taking narcotics that make them aware of hypertensions. They hear sounds nobody else hears. They're able to see things like a firefly from 30, 40 meters away. They become hyper aware of every rustling leaf and every tiny bit of synergy out there. Whereas you and I are so busy living, we have no time to notice all these things. Now, by and large, when you choose to smell the flowers, that's meaningful so to speak, because that's your accomplishment. 
You can train yourself to smell the flowers. You can train yourself to be in tune with nature. When you're just taking a narcotic or using some kind of foreign substance to get there, it never really changes you. And it's only about an experience where you didn't really do this. You checked out, in fact. So it has no lasting value. It doesn't change you, which is why drugs or substances, if they're needed for medicinal purposes, is one thing. But if they're needed for character building, is they're a waste of time unless you want to be drugged up for the rest of your life because it's not really you. You can effectuate change, but that's a very difficult thing to do. So imagine a person could create this hypersensitivity. There are aboriginals, the Navajo, aboriginals of what they call today the United States, who are so in touch with the ground, they can actually relate to the footsteps of an animal. The Navajo hunters could know of an animal that was in a distant place. In Israel, some of the tribes that lived there for a long time, called the Druze, are so in touch, they can know when the earth is disturbed. They're perfect for the IDF and the border control. It's not narcotics. It's a sensitizing of self. They didn't go somewhere. They became aware of something. The malach who can never transcend himself can't be aware of that. The tzaddik can sensitize himself and become aware of Ulam Habriya. And that's why eventually he moves into the infield or Ulam Habriya, very close to the picture. The tzaddik can be in the infield. The malach, the angel, is stuck in the outfield. He's in the world of Yitzira. He's in the world of formation. He's too aware of himself to be keenly in tune with a higher and truer reality. And the Altarebbe says in the footnote, This is what ordinary malachim. There are exalted spiritual creatures, angelic realities, whose servitude to Hashem is necessarily somewhat choreographed, developed. They actually do, to some degree, leave their nature behind. They're not just re responding to the ebb and flow, the tug of nature. They're actually able to rise above it. Alta Rebbe says, ah, this is Kamesh Kosov Raya Mehemna, as it says in Raya Mehemna, which is the, uh, another Kardasl of the Zohar, named after Moshe Rabbeinu, who was called the shepherd, the faithful shepherd, or shepherd of faith. There are two kinds of these creatures, holy beasts, if you will. There are Tivim Vesichlim, those who function only by rote, only by nature, only revealing the inner rhythm that is already there. And then, an angel who actually develops a love, an emotion, an awe, or respect, and an emotion, by virtue of the knowledge that it has. And so it's called sichlim. As it says in Eitzchayim, and Eitzchayim actually, it specifically says that the masichlim are connected to the world of Bria, and tivim, or natural angels, the angels who are in touch with their inner nat natural rhythm are an ilum hayatzida, which as many students of Tanya point out, this becomes then, even though this is a bit of a chiddush, it's a novelty, the way the Altar Rebbe frames malochim and tzaddikim, where tzaddikim living in Bria, and then the notion of malochim living in the world of Yitzira, that this is a proof for it. It's a proof because the division or the distinction between the service of tzaddikim and the service of the malochim is either just revealing natural rhythm 
or being able to change as a result of what we know. And the Rebbe says that's the difference between Olam of Yetzirah, the world, the dimension of Yetzirah, and the dimension of Bria. From this Eitz Chaim, we can actually prove what the Rebbe says insofar as our Avodat Hashem is concerned, although it speaks there in Eitz Chaim about different kinds of angels rather than the distinction between people and angels. Because you must know that even the angels who can somewhat change themselves don't really change their spots. The Ahava angel still remains an Ahava angel and the Yira angel, the Awe angel, still remains an Awe angel. But they can totally elevate the level of Awe, a level of love. So really, in the end, the Tzaddikim are still vastly greater. But what we have is angels who can sensitize themselves, at least go beyond their capacity of a particular dimension, whereas the tzaddik is able to transcend his or her dimension altogether, and that makes them sensitive to and privy to a higher and a true reality of divinity and godliness. If you're still with me, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share these words of Torah, these words of spirituality, and I hope inspiration. For the more we talk about and intellectualize these notions and ideas, the more we should value the opportunities we have to overcome our circumstances rather than be defined by it. To yearn to achieve greatness, to accomplish what we would call spiritual virtue by dint of the choices we make and the efforts we invest in transcending ourselves to come closer to the Creator and in the end, this is really who we are or who we should be. It is the purpose of our being. It's the reason for our existence. And the more we work at this, the more we are able to effectuate change, even if we don't see it, and the closer we come to the time that all of this will be experienced and visualized, to the time that we'll say, aha, so that's what we learn together in our Tanya teachings. Thank you for joining. If you haven't yet, subscribe, and please be sure to enable notifications.